Good morning, everyone. I'm Elizabeth Maxwell, and I'm going to be bringing the Bible reading this morning. And today's Bible reading comes from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 56. Uh, If you don't have a Bible, there are some up the back. That's our gift to you. So Luke chapter 1, 26 to 56. The birth of Jesus foretold. In the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent an angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favour with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she, who was said to be unable to conceive, is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. Mary visits Elizabeth. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. And why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfil his promises to her. Mary's song. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones and has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Mary stayed with Elizabeth for about three months and then returned home. Father in heaven, we bow our heads together before you now. May your spirit be our teacher, your word, our rule, your glory, our supreme concern. 
This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it's good to be here today for my first, my very first opportunity to be here on a Sunday morning and preaching in person at Tungabi. Um, I have been here a few times before in midweek occasions for Baptist assemblies and so on. Um, and I was supposed to be here back in 2021. Um, we almost got there. I almost got here and then the lockdown came. You might remember all that and uh, the uh, rules about LGAs and you couldn't go from one to another and so on. So I think I preached by video here, um, but this is my first time actually here in person. I'm really glad of the chance. The reason I get to be here this Sunday is because uh, you've got the big carols night tonight, which opened up a kind of blank space. This morning, here we are in the blank space. And uh, James got on the phone or in the email and asked if I could come and fill the space. And I was more than, more than delighted to do so. I'm really glad that I can be with you this morning. As I reflected on what I'd speak about, I thought I'd take my cue from that, from the fact that it's carols night season, it's uh, Advent, uh, almost Christmas. Uh, and then I'd take my cue from the season that we're in and preach on one of the passages that would have been set in the lectionary for us to read this Sunday, third of Advent, if we'd been part of one of those denominations that, that have a lectionary and set readings and so on. So this morning I'm preaching from Luke chapter 1. I want to preach about Mary, Mary's story and Mary's song, as we find them recorded in this chapter, in Luke chapter 1, in the reading that was read from us just a moment ago, culminating in the poem that's traditionally called the Magnificat. Growing up as a good Baptist boy, I have to confess that I never really thought much about Mary at all. Uh, I just assumed Mary was for Catholics. I wasn't one. Um, so apart from the occasional um, preschool nativity pageant, we could move right on by, nothing to see here, and uh, get stuck into the more important things in the chapters of the Bible that follow. Only really in much more recent years, as I've returned to these parts of Scripture um, and reflected uh, on Mary's story and on the song that she sings, the Magnificat, only really in much more recent years as I've come back and reflected on these verses, have I come to start to learn the things that I was missing all those years. And I want to share a little bit about them this morning. So this morning, uh, three things about Mary's story and two things about her song as we reflect together just briefly on Mary, Jesus, and the God who lifts up the humble. So to start with Mary's story and three aspects of her story uh, as it's told in this little bit of her story as it's told in these verses uh, that stand out from me from the way that Luke tells it. In the first place, uh, as you have your attention drawn to almost in the opening verse, in the first place, it's a story about Mary and God's grace. How does the angel greet Mary? Uh, right at the start of the passage there in verse 28. Greetings, says the angel. Greetings, you who are highly favoured. The Lord is with you. And then again in verse 30, the angel repeats the message. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. That word favour, as it's translated in those verses in our, our translation there, charis in the Greek is the one that's typically most commonly translated as grace in the rest of the New Testament. It's that word for the overflowing kindness and undeserved generosity of our good and merciful God. And the angel greets Mary and says to her twice, in effect, you are someone who has been incredibly 
enormously, immeasurably blessed by the goodness and the kindness of a gracious God, Mary. You are someone who has found the grace of God. And that same picture of God as a God who shows overflowing, unmerited kindness and goodness is reinforced again a few verses further down by Elizabeth, Mary's cousin. Verse 42, verse 43, where Elizabeth says when Mary comes to visit her, who am I? Why am I so favoured? Pothen moituta, literally. Three little words meaning, where did this come from for me? How come this for me? Pothen moituta. Why, why am I so favoured that the mother of my Lord should come to me? And again, down in verse 48, when it comes back to her and to her song, Mary is full of wonder that God has done such great things for her, that he has graced her, has blessed her so greatly, has chosen her out for such honour and such kindness. One of the unfortunate, one of the really unfortunate missteps, I think, in church history and the history of the translation of the Bible is the way that verse 28, back up in the start of the passage, was translated into the original Latin versions of the Bible, uh, the the Latin translation that became the Bible of the Western church for about a thousand years or more in the West. And the Latin version, verse 28, came out famously as Ave Maria, gratia plena, Hail Mary, full of grace. And the whole emphasis of Luke's story as that translation sunk into the consciousness of the Western church, the whole emphasis of Luke's story was kind of turned on its head. And Mary came to be no longer the wide-eyed, young Jewish girl, stunned and shocked at what is being told her by the angel, marveling and bewildered at the inexplicable kindness and grace of God that was being showered upon her, and instead became Mary, the mother of God up in heaven, full of grace, full of grace in herself, a kind of repository or reservoir of grace for us to draw from and eventually for the church to monetize and sell on the market in the form of indulgences uh, and years off for good behavior in purgatory. And so a story that began as one that was all about the overflowing, astonishing, unmerited kindness of God became a story in the end that was about the merits of the saints and how we can get a slice of them. It's easy to trace the story of how it happened in the way that they viewed Mary in medieval Catholicism. Uh, Probably less easy for us to see the danger of something similar happening in the way that we view ourselves. But it's possible. It's possible, I think, for us good Christians to come to think of ourselves in a kind of parallel, similar way possible for a similar shift to happen in the way we think about ourselves and grace and God, the God of grace, for us to gradually lose any sense of unmeritedness or astonishment or wonder in the way we think about the grace of God that's come to be ours in Jesus and to begin to 
to start to take grace for granted as an of course, as a basic presupposition, as a thing that we just kind of own and have a right to ourselves, as if we ourselves were now full of grace as our own possession. There's a sense, of course, there is a sense in which those of us who've come to taste the grace of God and received the grace of God ourselves absolutely ought to become full of grace in our dealings with others, overflowing in kindness to those around us, imitating and participating in the mercy and the kindness and the goodness of God. Absolutely true. Um, that's the kind of character and the kind of life that we're called to in the gospel. There is a sense in which we ought to be able to talk about James, Brad, David, full of grace. That's true. But it's not what the angel is talking about here. And it never means that God's grace somehow becomes something that we have kind of stitched up and packaged and now own with our name on it. It's never as if we get to purchase and download and install the app so that it's ours now with no need for daily connection and dependence and gratitude upon God, the God of grace. It's always, in a sense, in the cloud. And we always receive grace fresh from God, wirelessly, as it were, by his kindness and his freed in his freedom day by day it never stops being his grace that comes to us and flows through us to others it's always his before it's ours do you see we never become the full of grace ones in our own strength and capacity and when we find that happening to ourselves that mind shift happening um, we can learn a lot from mary um, and from her cousin Elizabeth, we can learn a lot from their sense of wonder as they marvel at God's grace. And as they say from the bottom of their hearts, who am I? Who are we? That God has done these great things for us. Grace never stops being grace in all the Christian life. We never stop being debtors to God's grace. No, as the Heidelberg Catechism rightly says, we increase our debt every day. We increase our debt every day. Mary and God's grace. Secondly, Mary and God's son. Because the content of the blessing that Mary has received from God is the amazing, the scary, the devastating, the life-shattering, <laughs> got to be honest here, for a probably teenage, late teens kid in Roman-occupied Palestine, not yet married. The news of her pregnancy is, is shocking and scary. Um, the earth-shattering, frightening, amazing promise that she will not only give birth, but give birth to the Son of God. The angel says to her, verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary. You found favor with God. You'll be with child and we give birth to a son. And you're to give him the name Jesus. He'll be great and will be called the son of the most high. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And his kingdom will know no end. For John and Elizabeth, 
For John and Elizabeth, the news from the angel that came to them was an obvious and double blessing. It was the answer to the prayers that they'd been praying for the nation that they lived in. And it was the answer to the prayers they'd been praying about the fact that they had no child and longed to have one. It must have been very different, the experience for Mary. Pregnancy for her wasn't the culmination of years of waiting and hoping and praying and longing. It would have been frightening and scandalous and completely out of the blue. It would have been like a bombshell. And yet it carried with, her, with it that incredible promise that the child she gave birth to would be even greater than Elizabeth's child. Uh, once again, the name is significant. The, the angel tells Mary that she's to call her son Jesus. The name in Hebrew is Yeshua or Yehoshua. It means the Lord is salvation. He'll be the king who sits on David's empty throne and brings the salvation of God to his people and his kingdom will be forever. That's the promise. Elizabeth picks up on the magnitude of it down in verse 43 when she says that verse I quoted a moment ago, why am I so favoured that, that the mother of my Lord, the mother of my Lord should come to me. The baby that Mary will give birth to will be the Lord himself. Mary and God's grace, Mary and God's son, and thirdly, Mary and God's word. There's an incredible, incredible simplicity, isn't there? In the way that Mary responds to the message from the angel. Luke gives us enough clues, just enough clues, in the way that he narrates the story to let us know that Mary is stunned and bewildered and confused. Of course, she is, by the message that's come to her from the angel. She must have been dumbfounded as to how it, how it could be and how it would all work out. And yet in the bottom line at the end of the paragraph, at the bottom line, she simply says, verse 38, I'm the Lord's servant. May your word to me be fulfilled. Or in the old versions, I'm the Lord's servant. Be it unto me. According to your word. Be it unto me according to your word. That's the attitude that the Bible consistently teaches us to have to the word of God as it comes to us. I'm, I'm a, by nature, by disposition and temperament, I am, I have to confess, a kind of thinking, arguing, questioning, worrying kind of person. It's just how God made me. I love to play with ideas, imagine possible scenarios, war game, all the, the outcomes that might potentially arise and how we're going to respond to all of them and you know, work out the chess moves four or five in advance. If God had a committee for the future, um, I'd be putting my hand up to be part of it. But Mary's example says to me, when God gives me a promise or a command in his word, Underneath all that worrying and thinking and arguing that's part of who I am and how I respond, underneath and beyond and after all of that, the bottom line of my response really should be the same as the bottom line of Mary's. I am the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to your word. I'm not sure how this is going to work out. I'm not married yet. 
It's too young. I don't even know how I'm going to conceive a baby, let alone safely bring a baby to birth and bring a baby up. And what's, what's the community going to say? And what's my family going to say? And how's it going to, I don't know how it's going to work. I'm the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to your word. Sometimes I think we can tend to separate our attitude to the Bible from our attitude to God, as if we could love the one and be half-hearted about the other, or be passionate about the one and kind of neglectful of the other. But God is not interested in how passionate we are about, how curious we are, how intellectually engaged we are in our, in our study of the scriptures and how eager we are to get good Bible teaching if it's not at its heart a manifestation of love for devotion to delight in God. Bible without heart and love for God and the work of the Spirit is, is just intellectual study of a book, right? And conversely, if we love God and if we, we know him and we long to know him better and want to serve him and to walk in his ways, then that has to translate to, has to translate to the earnestness, the eagerness, the depth, the, the persistence with which we wrestle with and engage with his word in the scriptures. We love Bible, we love God. If we love God, we'll love the Bible that he's given to us. And Mary's example shows us how to keep those two things together. I'm the Lord's servant. Be it unto me according to your word. Three ways that the example of Mary in her story, this little chapter of her story here, teaches us to respond to God. It reminds us, it reminds us of what it is to marvel at the grace of God. It points us to the greatness of the Son of God. And it encourages us to believe and to be obedient to the Word of God. To hold together our passion for God and His glory. And a devotion to every word that comes from His mouth. Mary's story. And secondly, Mary's song. Like most songs of the Bible, it's a new song. But it's also a very old song. And it quite deliberately picks up and echoes aspects of the ancient songs of the Old Testament. Uh, there are two songs in particular I want to draw your attention to that Mary's song echoes. And two important ways in which those echoes of the old song shape our understanding of and our response to the new song. First is the song of Moses and Miriam, way back in Exodus chapter 15. Uh, the song they sing, if you recall, after the crossing of the Red Sea and the escape from Egypt and Pharaoh's armies. Uh, there's two good reasons why it's not at all surprising that Mary's mind goes back to that song. The first is that that song, the Exodus 15 song, is the great song of Israel's history. The great anthem of Israel's hymn book. The Exodus was the big salvation event for Israel. It was the birth of the nation. It was the event that defined for them in story and in history the nature and the name of the God they worshipped. And if the Exodus was the big event of Israel's history, Exodus chapter 15 was the song that went with that event. It was the, like the, 
Israelite version of the Star Spangled Banner or the Marseillaise. That's, we don't have an Australian equivalent, do we? We didn't have a big event. We didn't have a war of independence. We didn't have a revolution. We never, we, all we got was advanced Australia fair. So I'm not going to even go there. But it's like the Star Spangled Banner. It's the Marseillaise of Israel. It's the song of the nation. And so it's one good reason why Mary's mind would have gone to that song. The other reason is that her own name, Mary, that her parents gave to her, was actually Miriam in Hebrew. Mary is just the Greek version of Miriam. So Miriam, the sister of Moses, was her namesake. And when Mary grew up hearing the story of Miriam in Exodus chapter 15, grabbing a tambourine and singing and dancing along with Moses on the edge of the Red Sea, when she heard that story as a kid, she would have imagined herself into the story, right? Standing in Miriam's shoes and singing along. Now, whether that's the case or not, it seems plausible that it would have been. The song that she sings here in Luke chapter 1 is a lot like the song that Moses and Miriam and the children of Israel sing, the salvation song that they sing on the shores of the Red Sea. In particular, it shares with them that idea of the strong arm of God. The arm of God that he uses to bring down the proud Pharaoh in the case of Exodus 15 and to lift up the humble, to set free the slaves, to rescue them from their misery and their groaning and to liberate his people. Four times in the song in Exodus chapter 15, it talks about the arm of God or the right hand of God as the, the symbol for the language for his ability to reach out into the world, to respond to the groanings and the cries and the prayers of his people and to bring down the pharaohs of this world, the great and the proud, the oppressors, the powerful, the destroyers and the persecutors and to lift up the miserable and the helpless and the downtrodden. That's the kind of God who had revealed himself to his people back in the Exodus. And Mary recognises his fingerprints all over uh, the story of what has happened to her. And so she praises God for the amazing truth that she's going to become the mother of the Messiah, that God has bypassed the rich and the powerful, the notables, the elites, the landowners, the great ones, the Jerusalem aristocracy, and he has chosen her of all people, of all people, Galilean peasant girl to be the mother of his son and that he has remembered his promise to bring a deliverer and set his people free. As she praises God for these things, she falls back, of course she does, into the language and the imagery of the song that Moses and Miriam sing by the shores of the Red Sea when God set her ancestors free from slavery in Egypt. And she says, that is exactly the kind of God he is who has done these great things for me. And then there's another song, a second song from the Old Testament that's even closer to Mary's song. And it's the song that Hannah sings in 1 Samuel chapter 2 uh, after the birth of her son Samuel. When you read it, when you sit it next to the song that Mary sings, put them side by side on the page, the similarities are striking. It begins almost verbatim the same. My heart exalts in the Lord. My spirit, my strength, I should say, is exalted in my God. And then a little further down, it picks up 
Almost all the themes of Mary's song. Do not keep talking so proudly or let your mouth speak arrogance. For the Lord is a God who knows and by him deeds are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble gird on strength. Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry are fat with spoil. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and he raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low. He also exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. Hannah's God, do you see? Hannah's God, the God of the great reversal, the lifter up of the poor and of the humble. Hannah's God is Mary's God. He is a God whose delight is to bring down the arrogant and to exalt the humble, to send the rich away empty, uh, to feed the hungry, to make the rich poor and the poor rich, to lift the needy out of the ash heap and to give them a place of honor at the table. He's the God who loves to turn things upside down. Luke takes delight throughout the entirety of his gospel all the way across the 24 chapters of the story in pointing out again and again that aspect of the character and the kingdom of God. Luke's gospel is a gospel of reversals. And the Jesus that we meet in the gospel of Luke over and over again is a Jesus who loves to turn upside down the hierarchies and the orders of the world. So the workers who turn up at the end of the day get as much as the ones who are hired at the start. The son who went off and wasted his inheritance in the far country, comes home from the piggery where he's been working and gets a ring on his fingers and a new set of clothes. The man, the rich man clothed in purple who has no love for God and no compassion for the poor is cast into hell. And the poor man Lazarus at his gate is there in paradise feasting at the bosom of Abraham. The kingdom of God is wide open to those, the helpless ones who enter it like little children. But for rich young rulers, it's like getting a camel in through the eye of a needle. It's there all the way through the gospel in the teaching of Jesus. And it's there in the practice of Jesus as well, in the way that he relates to people throughout the story of all the pages of Luke's gospel. He doesn't come with weapons or military power to overthrow the Roman Empire or to tear down the temple. But he promises that God will do that one day. And here and now in the present, while he's on earth, he points forward to the way in which the kingdom of God will be, be like that in how he relates to the people around him and in the kind of community that he creates among his followers. So he eats with tax collectors and sinners, some of them amongst the inner circle of his disciples. He has dinner with one of the Pharisees and with a prostitute from the town who comes in and washes his feet with her tears. He welcomes into relationship with God, not the good people who think they deserve to be there, but the people who weep over their sin. He teaches his disciples that the greatest among them is not the one who's served by everyone else, but the one who serves. And he shows that by the way he leads them as their servant. And he brings about the salvation of the world by dying on a cross. He's the one who turns the world upside down. And Mary erects a big signpost pointing toward that right at the start of the story. Right at the beginning of the narrative of Luke's gospel, 
Mary makes it clear at the birth of, even before the birth of Jesus, that he's that kind of, that kind of Messiah bringing that sort of salvation. So she says, my soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my saviour. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and lifted up the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, even as he said to our fathers. Three things about Mary's story, two things about Mary's song. What does Mary's song have to say about us and the world that we live in? Well, it reminds us firstly that the world we live in and the way in which it is presently ordered, the relationships that it sets up between the colonized and the colonizers, between the owners of capital and the workers who work in their fields and factories, between the wealthy and the powerful and the elites, and between the outsiders and the neglected and the oppressed and the helpless, the way in which this world is currently ordered, everywhere you look, across the whole global economy and the international political order, the way in which this world is currently ordered is under the judgment of God. Whenever we're tempted to join in the struggle that everyone else around us gives their lives to, to climb up the poles and up the ladders, to get ourselves to the top of the pyramid and the pinnacle of the hierarchy, to get and to keep and to defend privilege and power and amass it for ourselves. Whenever we're tempted to join in that game and devote our lives and our strength and our energy to it, Mary's song reminds us that that tree everyone's trying to climb, the tree of the powerful and the privileged, is a tree that our God is going to cut down one day. He's going to cut it down at the roots and bring it low. If we dedicate our lives to becoming counted among the rulers on their thrones, if we want to be those rulers ourselves, if we want to get to the top by putting other people below us and win the competitive zero-sum games of this world, get to the top of the hill the top of the tree the top of the pyramid with other people below us if that is what our lives are for securing and maintaining and preserving and protecting our own comforts and privileges if we want to give our lives to that game then mary's song reminds us that god is going to bring us down when he brings down all the powerful and the privileged the rulers who sit on their thrones. When he sends the rich away empty, we will be among those whom he sends away. That is what he's promised to do when Mary's son Jesus comes again to judge the living and the dead at the end of the age. Mary's song reminds us of the judgment of God that stands over the world that we live in and the way that it is currently ordered. Do you see? It also reminds us, secondly, of the kind of community that God has established among those who have entered into his kingdom and become followers of Messiah Jesus. The kind of community where God gives a signpost and a foretaste of his coming kingdom 
to show the world the nature of his wisdom and to hold it up even in the sight of the principalities and powers. Mary's song gives us a glimpse of the kind of community that his church ought to be, that he is building. The kind of community where God welcomes the poor and gives a place of honour at his table to the hungry. One day the whole world will be like that when God brings in the fullness of his kingdom and the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that will come down from heaven. And we should work and pray as we have opportunity to make this whole world a little bit more like that as we have opportunity even in the present. But here, within the community of his people, it must be like that. It must be like that. Because we are called to be a sign that points forward to that kingdom. A demonstration to the principalities and powers in heaven of the wonders, the wondrousness of the wisdom of God. And so we need to hold this passage up, this song of Mary up against this community and against the churches of our movement, against our, our communities of faith and the way in which we practice and order them. And ask, is that what this church looks like? And what are the ways in which we need to change and keep on changing to become more like that? To become places where people who walk in and see the way we relate to one another say, this is truly the church of the God who brings down the proud and who lifts up the humble, who humbles the arrogant and who welcomes and honours the helpless. That is the kind of church we need to be, do you see? If we are to adorn the gospel and demonstrate its beauty to the world. Mary's song speaks to us about our world and the judgment of God that is upon it. It speaks to us about the church and the calling that is on us to embody the values of the kingdom. And thirdly, most importantly of all, most importantly of all, it speaks to us of Jesus. It speaks to us of Jesus, who is the one who is the whole reason that Mary sings the song in the first place. It speaks to us of Jesus, who is the one in whom these great reversals and blessings of God take place, lifting up the humble and bringing down the proud. It speaks to us of Jesus, by whose death and resurrection we know that these promises of God will come true. It's not just pie in the sky, the dreams of the helpless, but the promise of the resurrection God. And it's in Jesus that God shows his mercy and his power to those who fear him from one generation to the next. Will you join me in giving thanks and in praying in his name now? Father, it's in the name of Jesus that we lift our hearts up before you now to give thanks and praise to you, to rejoice in, to magnify your name uh, to exalt in you our saviour and it's in the name of Jesus that we bring to you our prayer uh, we pray heavenly father that you would make us people who live by this gospel of the great reversal of your kingdom people whose lives tell the story of the gospel and make this our church and all the churches of that name the name of your son, the Lord Jesus, around the world, by your grace and through your power, more and more a demonstration and display of the beautiful, shattering, 
terrifying, wonderful values of your coming kingdom. In the name of and for the glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus, for whom we live and by whose name we pray. Amen.